You are listening to Radio Free Humanity, the Marxist Humanist Podcast. My name is Brendan Cooney. And I'm Andrew Kleiman. On today's episode, Andrew and I discuss a paper that Andrew wrote a few years back called How Not to Evaluate the Relevance of Marx's Capital. To hear more episodes of Radio Free Humanity, to read more about the issues discussed, or to join in the conversation, please visit marxisthumanistinitiative.org. You can also make a donation to the podcast there on the website. While our podcast is hosted by MHI, the views expressed by the co-hosts and guests of Radio Free Humanity are their own. They do not necessarily reflect the views and positions of MHI. In just a few moments, Andrew and I will be discussing how not to evaluate the relevance of Marxist capital. But first, as we do in every episode, we're going to take a few minutes to discuss some current events. So we are recording this current event section on Wednesday, April 13th. And we're going to be talking about some of the conversation and the left around the war in Ukraine. We're going to be talking about uh, the position of a coalition called Peace in Ukraine. You can find their website at peaceinukraine.org. And we're also going to be talking about some of the response that MHI has gotten to our editorial on Ukraine and discuss and clarify some of the, the positions in that editorial about um, some various issues, including the issue of national self-determination. So there is a new coalition called Peace in Ukraine. You can find it at peaceinukraine.org. And it's a coalition of groups, Code Pink, Food Not Bombs, um, the Campaign for Nuclear Disarmament. There's a branch of the DSA, DSA International Committee, Peace Action, the Stop the War Coalition. Last Saturday, April 9, they held what they called an international online rally and they called for ceasefire in Ukraine and negotiated settlement now, Russian troops out, no NATO expansion. Uh, and the speakers included Tariq Ali, uh, Medea Benjamin, Noam Chomsky, Vijay Prashad, also Yanis Varoufakis, Kate Hudson, Lindsay German, and others. And here's what they, what they said uh, in the email message advertising this. As the conflict in Ukraine rages on, we, the peace-loving people of the world, must raise our voices to demand a ceasefire and a negotiated settlement. We will hear from some of the sharpest politicians, analysts, and organizers around the world about how they view this conflict and what we can do to create a global movement to end this conflict. As Andrew read a minute ago, the rally was called Ceasefire in Ukraine and Negotiated Settlement Now. What's insidious about this is this idea that um, that the people of Ukraine are being asked to appease Putin, to give up territory to him, to come up with some sort of settlement to end the war and like cede vast parts of their country to Putin uh, as if this is going to like, I mean, there's so many problems with one. It's like treating people in Ukraine like there's some kind of pawn in this international conflict and we're like just saying we want to sacrifice their well-being because everyone else is scared of Putin's aggression. But it also seems to like rest on this assumption that somehow if you give Putin some land and agree to some ceasefire and make some settlement, that this is going to like resolve the conflict as if Putin doesn't have a much more ambitious interest to like take as much territory as possible. I mean, we, it seems mo both practically ignorant, um, but also morally reprehensible that people seem so eager to like sacrifice U Ukrainians' self-determination, their right to live free of the Putin regime? Well, I mean, I, I, I really fully agree with you. I mean, I think, first of all, the the overriding 
theme that comes from a lot of people supposedly on the left pushing back against the support for Ukraine. If you listen to them, they are always treating the Ukrainians as pawns in some big international global conflict, which is really between NATO and Russia, which really means it's between the U.S. and Russia, and the other people don't matter. They don't have any agency. We, we talked about that with Rohini Hensman. It's as if they, they really don't exist. They're not real people. They're not a real nation, you know, and it's just the U.S. versus Russia. So it's exactly what you said. They're just pawns, and we can ignore what they want, what's happening to them. In this case, these are people who are being slaughtered. There's, you know, horrific atrocities, war crimes, which I, I think are, are, are genocidal because it's meant to wipe out a people, the Ukrainian people, being perpetrated on them. In the midst of all this, you're, 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 you're demanding that they negotiate a settlement. Maybe it, it might be different if you were to say negotiate a settlement after all of the Russian troops have withdrawn. I mean, may, maybe that would be different. But when the oppressor's boot is on your neck, to, to tell the, the, the person with the boot on their neck, you know, negotiate now, we demand that, that is a really imperialist mentality. And that's, that's just what's really driving me crazy about all of this stuff coming out from the people who are trying to have a middle road. They have the same kind of imperialist mentality that Putin is expressing legitimate security concerns of Russia, you know, as if the Ukrainians don't have legitimate security concerns. You know, it's as if they don't exist. It's as if they're not real. That just reflects a, a big, a great power mentality or an imperialist mentality, whatever you you, you, you want to call it. I, I, I thought this was just horrible. Yeah, but it flies under the cover of being a coalition for peace and saving the Ukrainian people. And they say they want the Russian troops to withdraw and they want NATO to not expand. So they, they're trying to play this game where it looks like they're covering other bases and they're beyond criticism. And as, as long as you want peace in Ukraine, then then you should be able to fall with under this like broad tent that they look like they're, they're painting. It's a little deceptive and you might not realize at first what that the the people of Ukraine are being like thrown under the bus by this this sort of rhetoric. Exactly. They do have a lot of support from pacifists here, but it, it looks to me like these are people who realize that support for Putin and an anti-NATO line is not going to play very well now. And, you know, people like Chomsky, whose normal MO would just be to tell us that uh, this is all about uh, the aggression of NATO and the U.S. and so forth, and ju just to criticize the U.S., they realize that they can't get away with that at this moment. So what they're trying to do is to say, oh, we're right here smack in the middle as a way to save face and, and tide over the crisis that they face. I don't think that most of these people wanted to have a, a, a public position that's this kind of back in the middle of the road, but I think that the worldwide horror, especially the horror in, in the U.S. and Europe and so forth, over over uh, Putin's actions, I think that's forced them into this kind of public presentation of what they're about. Well, why don't we use that as a pivot to talk about some of the comments that we've had on the website uh, in response to MHI's editorial on Ukraine, because there definitely was a um, tenor amongst some of the commentators that expressed this sort of pacifist opinion as if 
as if expressing support for Ukrainian self-determination was somehow going to prevent the end of the war. Whereas, as we just discussed, it seems pretty clear that it's very unlikely that demanding that Ukraine make a settlement is going to somehow end the war. It's just going to encourage Putin to take more land and be more imperialist. There was also another line of criticism that characterized support for Ukrainian self-determination as supporting one capital state over the other. This is uh, an instance of a much broader uh, phenomenon on the, on the left, like when you say, well, so-and-so was elected in a fair and free election, and the people of the country have a right to, you know, determine their own leaders. People think that that's, you're supporting that leader, and, and you, you're not. What you're doing is saying that you're recognizing that you're not entitled to be the absolute dictator of the world and how it works, and that there are other people, and that they... <laughs> They're on the ground, and it's you know their country, and they uh, should be allowed to determine their own fate. A lot of people just don't hear that because they don't accept it, and because they don't accept it, I think they don't believe that anybody else believes it either. We have gotten a lot of positive response to the editorial. Some of it is reflected on that page in the comments section of our website. A lot of private correspondence as well. We've gotten a strongly positive response from from many quarters, but a lot of the negative response is just about the principle of the right of national self-determination. There's a, from various quarters. There's you know just objections to that and, and rejection uh, of that. And uh, you know at a different time I would w- want to debate that, but at the, the moment I think it just is to talk about that is just to give aid to to Putin. I mean, we have to remember that Vladimir Putin is the one that said the Ukrainians are not a real nation, they don't have a right to territory, they're not a people, they're really Russians, you know, we really have a right to their country, or it's our country. Opposition to national self-determination in these circumstances is not not just some innocent abstract uh, question, but I think that a lot of people who wrote in just do not even understand what that right is and what we mean by that. For instance, we got the comment like, well, you know, in order to talk about national self-determination, you have to have a pre-political view of what constitutes a nation, what is a people, and so forth. And we kind of like pre-butted that. We anticipated that and said in the editorial, look, it's up to the people in Ukraine to define themselves. Uh, are they a nation? Are they not a nation? What is it that they want? And, and again, that kind of idea just doesn't sit well with people who kind of, I, I don't know, always thought that they, you know, should be able to dictate this is right, this is wrong, in abstraction from what the people on the ground want. Today is April 11th, and we're going to be talking about a paper that Andrew wrote back in, when was this written? It was written in 2015, and it was published in 2016. It's called How Not to Evaluate the Relevance of Marxist Capital, and the name of the journal again? A Crisis and Critique. So we'll link to that. So I thought this was a great paper, rereading it again for this podcast. I thought it was very clarifying on some issues, very insightful. So 
Let's just jump into it. What's the what's the paper about when you say how not to evaluate the relevance of Marx's capital? What's your main argument here? You know, there's a lot of uh, talk out there. A lot of people make arguments that major parts of Marx's capital have been rendered irrelevant because capitalism has changed. I try to put some order into that whole discussion by saying you have to understand what kind of book capital is. You have to understand, in other words, its genre. And the arguments that changes in capitalism have rendered capital irrelevant uh, are often based on misunderstandings or misrepresentations of what the book is about. Uh, And I go into a couple of the main kinds of misunderstandings or misinterpretations, explain what's wrong with them. And then in the latter part of the the, the paper, I go into so-called case studies, looking at some prominent arguments that aspects of capital, uh, aspects of Marx's capital have been made irrelevant by uh, Sylvia Federici, having to do with women's reproductive work. Um, by Barron and Sweezy in the Monthly Review School, having to do with the law of the tendential fall and the rate of profit. Also, biographer of Marx makes another argument about the law and the fall and the rate of profit. So I go into their charges of irrelevance and show how they're partly based on this issue of misunderstanding or misrepresenting what the book is about. And they're, they're more detailed than that, so there's other issues as well. Well, this will be hopefully of interest to a lot of our listeners because these are critiques you hear often, or these are arguments that one hears often, uh, especially the one about women's labor being ignored in capital, but also the monopoly theory. So hopefully people will find this interesting and not just clarifying about those particular cases, but also the more general question of, you know, what capital is about and how we evaluate its relevance. So but why did you write this paper at the time you wrote it? Was something going on? Well, yeah, I mean, not in the world uh, uh, as such, but I had been asked somewhat earlier by an Argentine uh, leftist publication to produce something. So I produced a rather quick article that was more in line with the general uh, articles on the relevance of capital. You know, people like, capital is irrelevant because, and they give their you know, line, or capital remains relevant because, and they give their line, and I did some of that. I also kind of very quickly sketched my problems with the whole irrelevance arguments, you know, based on what kind of book capital was about, and that has to be understood, but I didn't develop it at any length. So when Crisis and Critique Uh, approached me and and invited me to submit an article, I said, okay, here's the time for me to sit down and really work out very carefully and explain what kind of book capital is about and why certain uh, kinds of arguments as to it's irrelevant because capitalism has changed or whatever, why those arguments are just not really legitimate. So that, that, that's what I thought was the, the really important point because, you know, it, it moves it beyond, well, my view is, and my view is, it gets down to what are the criteria on which we need to assess uh, the, the relevance instead of it just being a free-for-all, I'm trying to, like, get to the issue of standards, uh, criteria, uh, methods for evaluating this. So you say many critics uh, say that changes in capitalism have made capital or parts of capital irrelevant. And you say that such arguments frequently misunderstand or misrepresent the book's genre. 
So what's the connection between the charge of irrelevance and this issue of misunderstanding or misrepresentation of capital's genre? Right. Um, I looked at a couple of the main kinds of charges of irrelevance, and it became clear to me that both of them had to do with uh, misunderstandings or misrepresentations of what Marx's capital was about. Uh, one is people say the world no longer looks like the world described in capital because this change in capitalism or that change in capitalism uh, has occurred since Marx's day. And that charge presumes that the book is a descriptive work, that the difference between what it says and the way the world looks is a failure to describe today's world uh, accurately. And the other main charge of uh, irrelevance that I isolated uh, is that Marx's capital ignores or leaves out or leaves undeveloped uh, important aspects of capitalism or capitalist society, uh, especially, you know, things that have become increasingly important since Marx's time. That charge presupposes that the book uh, is about capitalism or all of capitalist society. So, in your paper, you acknowledge that you say, quote, the world now seems very different from the one we are confronted with in capital. So, you acknowledge that the world doesn't look, in many ways, the same way it did when Marx was writing capital. But you say that this, quote, fact simply does not imply that the book has become irrelevant or even less relevant than when it was written. So, what, what's the argument? Well, it's not a descriptive work. There is some description, but in the main, it's not a descriptive work. It's a theoretical work. And frankly, the world also looked very different from the world depicted in Volume 1 of Capital uh, back when Marx wrote it, and he was very well aware of this. Uh, I mean, one of my favorite quotes, and I've quoted it on the, the podcast several times, he said in Volume 2 of Capital, it is typical of the bourgeois horizon where business deals fill the whole of people's minds to see the foundation of the mode of production and the mode of commerce corresponding to it rather than the other way around. So, you know, when business deals uh, fill the whole of people's minds, you think the foundation of everything is commerce, not the mode of production. Um, he says it's, in fact, the mode of production that's foundational, not the mode of commerce. But that's the way things look to people. It was, you know, the commerce was in the driving seat, and that was way back when, when he was writing Volume 2 of Capital. And obviously, you know, Volume 1 of Capital is not about business deals that are filling the whole of people's minds. So even though that's what attracted everybody's attention even back then, permeated all of society all the way back then, that's not what he focused on. Uh, it was not a work of description. It didn't focus on appearances. And Marx just repeatedly kept coming back to this issue of a scientific analysis versus a descriptive one or an account that focuses on how things look on the surface. And he distinguished between appearance, you know, how things look on the surface, and essence. And he said, look, there wouldn't be any need for science if the way things looked on the surface were, you know, the way things really are. And the task of science is to uncover what's not clear, you know, when you look at surface appearances, the inner connections and so forth. And that's what he uh, consistently said was what he was trying to do in the book. So it's not description, but it's revelation of inner connections that are, are not apparent. 
what is the relationship between this theoretical way of uh, writing a book and a task of describing capitalism? If someone wanted to describe capitalism, right, what would be the relationship of that task to something like capital? Maybe you could answer better because you maybe understand the question better. Well, you're saying it's um, not, you're saying, you know, some, some, a lot of people want to write a book that describes like appearances, that describes capital yeah. society. Capital is sure. not doing that necessarily. It's fundamentally trying to explain the capitalist mode of production in a theor- theoretical sense. Um, right. But it's not completely divorced from uh, describing or uh, at least explaining how the world of appearance comes to be, right? Right. I mean, volume volume three of Capital is, is, a, is about connecting the uh, appearances to the f- foundational... Um, you know, theoretical discussion that has occurred before uh, in the first two volumes, especially v- volume one. I mean, what Marx is concerned to do uh, primarily is to show that the surface appearances, although they seem on the surface to contradict what he has said in volume one in fundamental ways, uh, he shows that they don't actually, or he argues that they don't actually contradict that. And, you know, secondarily, like for instance, um, well, mainly, volume one uh, works out how profit gets created, the, the production of surplus value. And volume three looks at uh, the various forms uh, that that takes, uh, you know, profit of industrial companies, uh, rent of land, interest income, you know, so forth and so on. And he looks at the struggles between like the lenders and the borrowers and, and all of that. So he, he, he then gets to the business deals that fill the whole of people's minds. So you can do you know a lot of work on finance and commerce and you, you can talk about all of those things. It doesn't, as long as the description's correct, it's fine. It doesn't go to the theoretical issues necessarily though. Marx also thought that one of the real merits of his contribution to political economy was that he was able to resolve some of the apparent contradictions that Ricardo ran up against with the uh, uh, average rate of profit because he did not start with just appearances and went to um, the real th- theoretical foundation of society and pr- uh, production and then dealt with uh, the distribution of surplus value later in, in the realm of appearance. He was able to resolve things that prior thinkers weren't able to resolve. So he... Yeah, I'm not. I'm not sure that it's correct that that's the reason that he was able to resolve it, or that he even said that that was the reason he was able to resolve it. I mean, he said that Ricardo was not abstract enough, and that what he, I think what he meant was that Ricardo does not distinguish between commodities value and its price of production. He tries to identify the really abstract category value with the the more with the form of appearance, price of production, maybe that's what maybe that's what you were saying. Maybe that's what you, what you were saying. Yeah, he wants like value to be immediately right, immediately um, present, immediately re- appear. You know, yeah, yeah, appear. Uh, yeah, appear immediately instead of having to go through these mediations. Yeah, I, now I now that I understand what you're saying, I, yeah, I, I agree. I agree with that. Yeah, exactly. That's what Marx says: is you have to go through the mediations. There's a lot of intermediate steps before you can get to talking about uh, actual uh, prices and R- Ricardo like kind of di- didn't have an intermediate step. So in the paper 
You note that people who claim that capitals become irrelevant or are less relevant frequently argue that the book leaves out or overlooks important aspects of capitalism or that its treatment of that aspect is underdeveloped. So, for example, you quote the Monthly Review author Heather Brown, who wrote in 2014 that Marxist theory remains underdeveloped in terms of providing an account that includes gender as important to understanding capitalism. I mean, people have probably heard this sort of argument before. So what what do you have to say about that? Right. Well, the the, the, the presupposition behind that a statement like that is that understanding capitalism was somehow the aim of Marxist theory and capital. Uh, in other words, this is a classic kind of example of presupposing that Marxist capital is a book about all of capitalism not specifically a book about capital, the capitalist mode of production and the relations of exchange, you know, corresponding to the mode of production. So, yeah, I mean, gender relations are very important aspects of capitalism, but there's a different question. If you have an analysis specifically of capital, do you have to have an analysis of gender relations there? Uh, and if it's not the case that you need an analysis of gender relations in an analysis specifically of capital, the fact that it's not there doesn't make it underdeveloped. I mean, uh, it, it's an issue of, of a genre. Like, let's, let's take a cookbook. You know, you have a cookbook, and it doesn't tell us much about farming, it doesn't tell us much about animal husbandry. Uh, but sane people don't go around saying, you know, this cookbook remains underdeveloped in terms of providing an account of food provision that includes farming and animal husbandry, right? Yeah, I thought your discussion of this and the paper was good because it fleshed out what I always sort of, my, my instinct was whenever I've heard this complaint that capital doesn't talk about women's labor and the reproduction of labor power. And I've always wanted this just my first thought has always been like so what which can come off sounding like it's like dismissing the concerns of like understanding the role of domestic labor or women in capitalism but that's not what i you know would mean by so what but i mean like so what like how does that change anything about what marx writes in capital like what is changed about any claim he makes by discussing a certain type of unproductive labor. I've never understood like what the real argument is. Like it's it's just unless it's just couched in like a vague way. But uh, anyway, so I think I thought you were good in the paper of like being very clear about what is being tried to accomplish in capital. How this kind of attempt of a critique doesn't really match with what capital is about. But so you you say this idea that capital is a book about capital not about everything that takes place in capitalism, is pertinent to this issue, right, of whether the book has become irrelevant or less relevant. So do you want to talk about that a little bit? Okay, so the, the, the claim, and I open the paper affirming that capitalism has changed tr very, very drastically since, since Marx wrote Capital. But the, the changes that people generally point to, like uh, the increasing dominant role of financial relations, for instance, those things that they point to are changes in capitalism that aren't changes in capital itself, the capitalist mode of production. And it could be that those changes somehow impinge on the capitalist mode of production, but might not be the case. 
Uh, it's not something that could be taken for granted. It would need to be proven. But if the changes don't alter the capital's mode of production, then they have no bearing on the analysis provided in capital, so they don't make it less relevant. Similarly to what you were saying with the, the domestic labor or whatever. You know, and one can disagree with Marx's analysis, but that's not the same thing as just dismissing aspects because they're supposedly no longer relevant. And with regard to finance or, you know, gender relations, you, you might not want to read Capital. You might not be interested in what he, he's talking about. And that's fine. Go read what you, you care about. Not a book about Capital. But that doesn't mean that that book is irrelevant. It's just, you know, not your cup of tea. Um, so you say it's a book specifically about Capital. But critics say often that it's a book about all of capitalism, or they treat it as if that's what it's about. So how do you know that you're right and they're wrong? Uh, well, there's a tremendous amount of textual evidence because Marx really began this whole project in 1844. Uh, and, you know, volume one of Capital comes out in 1867. And, you know, he wrote what we know as the economic and philosophic manuscripts of 1844. People often forget that there's an economic part in that. But initially, he really wanted to talk about everything under the sun, because he writes that that was his initial plan. He would deal with political economy, philosophy, law, ethics, politics, civil life, maybe other topics, and all in one book. And already by the time he's doing these 1844 manuscripts, he says, I can't do this all in one book. Okay, so he's going to narrow it down. But all of those are, you know, parts of capitalist society. He says, no, i got to narrow it down. When he's writing the Grundrisse at 1857-58, he says, okay, I'm going to do six books. There's capital and landed property, wage labor, the state, foreign trade, and world market and economic crises. Okay, what we eventually get a decade later is three volumes or four, what do you call, four books, uh, and all of them are specifically about capital. Uh, and they're not even about everything he wanted to talk about in capital. The, the capital book, when he was drafting the Grundries, so he had, well, well, we're going to talk about, you know, the, the, the stock market, we're going to talk about this, we're going to talk about that, and, and you know, there's just not a lot of that stuff in capital. So he kept, just kept narrowing it down, narrowing it down, narrowing it down. So in Marx's mind, you know, like when he writes a book, Capital, he means something very, very specific. And it does not include uh, analysis of the state. It does not include analysis of ethics. It does not include major discussion of foreign trade, etc., etc. So he means something very, very specific. And we can see this from his practice where he just kept narrowing it down and what we have with Capital is a very, very narrow book, not because Marx failed to complete <laughs> his manuscripts for publication. He intentionally narrowed it down because he just realized he could not, you know, deal with everything in one volume or even a multi-part, multi you know, work. He couldn't de deal with it. Um, do we know why he narrowed down the scope of his investigation so drastically, or do you have a, a sense of why? We, we know that in 1844 he said you, you, you can't deal with all of these things all at once in one work. And he explained why. But what happened between 1857, 58 and 1867? You know, he had these six books. Then, you know, we, we get like volume one of these six books. 
he was getting older, he had health problems, and he had bit off much more than he could chew. That's an answer. I don't think it's uh, a complete answer, though. The reason I don't think it's a complete answer is there's a lot of people out there who could have completed this project. All six books, and they could have thrown in, you know, philosophy and law and ethics and politics and civil life and talked about everything at once. There are a lot of people like that. So the other part of the answer, I think, is Marx was not that kind of guy. He wasn't an everything about author. I'm going to tell you the whole world at once. He was very methodical, dialectical, you know, Hegelian, precise, very exacting. And, you know, if you're going to be that kind of person, it would require several lifetimes to do, do what he was initially trying to do back in 1844. Hey, we're going to return to this conversation in just a moment. But first, as we do in every episode, we're going to take just a few minutes to hear from Angela Clard, Organizational Secretary of Marxist Humanist Initiative, the organization which sponsors this podcast. Marxist Humanist Initiative, or MHI, aims to contribute to the transformation of this capitalist world by projecting, developing, and concretizing the philosophy of Karl Marx and its further development in the Marxist humanism articulated by Raya Donayevskaya. The ongoing COVID-19 pandemic and today's many other social, political, and economic crises make this a moment to engage people in discussion of these ideas. In the U.S., we are faced with the threat of Trumpism triumphing in all-out authoritarianism extinguishing our right to carry on these discussions. Yet at the same moment, the multiracial movement for black lives has spread to every corner of the country and the world, launching a flood of activism and new ideas that deepen the concept of freedom. MHI is dedicated to the task of proving theoretically that an alternative to capitalism is possible. We are distinguished by our economic analyses in which we do not merely assert but demonstrate that the only opposite to the current world economic system is its abolition and replacement with one not based on the production of, quote, value, close quote. Because capitalism cannot be fundamentally reformed, attempts to reform it lead to an intensification of state capitalism, not to socialism. We are not a political party, nor are we trying to lead the masses who will form their own organization and whose emancipation must be their own act. But we have seen that spontaneous actions alone are insufficient to usher in a new society. We seek a new unity of philosophy and organization in which mass movements striving for freedom lay hold of Marxist philosophy of revolution and recreate society on its basis. Our ideas and actions, as well as our structure and rules, are guided by the interests of working people and freedom movements of people of color, LGBTQ people, other minorities, women, youth, and all those around the world who are struggling for self-determination in order to freely develop their own human natures. We have no interests separate and apart from theirs. To this end, we open our website to the widest possible dialogue with people around the world we intend to practice as well as espouse a two-way road between our organization and people outside it as essential to developing a single dialectic in the relationship of theory to practice and as the way to assure the survival of Marxist humanism. Please join us. In the paper, you examine Silvia Federici's so-called feminist critique of Marx that 
I mean, I, I associate with like 1970s feminism. Is she like a leading figure in that kind of critique? Like, why did you pick her particularly? Yeah, she's a leading figure, uh, but I, I picked her also because that was a fairly recent contribution. Okay. I mean, she was still, at, at the time I wrote this paper, she had just still recently, you know, put forward a, a, a version of the, uh, the this critique. And so I was looking at a late, developed, you know, refined version. So I wouldn't, wouldn't want to take something that was said back in, you know, the early 1970s where people say oh well they've moved on you know blah 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 I'm, I'm, I'm getting you know from the horse's mouth as of the uh, the time I was ready gotcha. so how does her quote so-called feminist critique involve the claim that capitals become irrelevant or less relevant right she says Marx ignored what used to be called domestic labor she calls it women's reproductive work uh, and she's got several reasons that she uh, says he ignored it uh, but one of them was Marx described the condition of the industrial proletariat of his time as he saw it, and women's domestic labor was hardly part of it. Uh, so it's clear from that she's treating capital as a descriptive work, you know, rather than theoretical work, you know, and she's dealing with, oh, of that time, so she's trying to say capitalism has changed in a certain way. And she's rejecting much of the book on the grounds that its description ignores an important aspect of capitalism. So the issue of capitalism versus capital specifically is involved here. She does go on to try to say that the book's analysis of capital would be different if it properly considered reproductive work. I think it's a lame argument, but you know at least there's an argument there, and I, I do try to address that. Uh, but I think her overarching point is that capital has become less relevant, not in an objective sense. I mean, she thinks it was, you know, flawed always. But uh, in a subjective sense, it's less relevant in light of her feminist critique. The fact that it ignored some, you know, really important dimension of capitalism that it shouldn't have ignored, that just wasn't seen until this feminist critique comes along. Uh, so it seemed relevant, but now it's clear that, you know, it's fundamentally uh, flawed in terms of its relevance. I think that's what she's trying to argue. Right, right. So so Federici argues that, uh, as she says, Marx ignored women's reproductive work. And she criticizes Marx for his, quote, blindness to the significance of women's unpaid reproductive work in the process of capitalist accumulation. What does women's unpaid reproductive work mean for people who are like not familiar with this uh, line of thought? And, and how do you answer this criticism? Right. Well, basically, reproductive work uh, is, is a category includes housework and child uh, rearing and child bearing, you know, uh, reproduction. And it's unpaid. I don't like that term unpaid. I think it's a loaded term. You know, women's unpaid reproductive work. Women do not, you know, housekeepers do not receive monetary wage payments explicitly for doing housework. But they do receive what we recognize to be wages in kind. Food, clothing, shelter, and so forth. So, you know, there's this always this like kind of a suggestion that, well, if women were to receive, you know, a, a monetary wage, the cost to the capitalists... Uh, would be higher, their profit would be less, and somehow they're benefiting from the fact that women don't exp receive an explicit wage. Well, no, I, I don't buy that uh, at all. 
you know, if women to were to receive uh, an explicit wage, then you'd just be getting two paychecks from the employer instead of one. But they would total the same total, as far as I can see. So just because people don't receive an explicit payment doesn't mean that there's not implicitly remuneration for those things. Okay, the other thing is when she says that Marx ignored women's reproductive work, I mean, he did not discuss it in Capital. There's no, you know, there's no doubt about that. The, but when she says he ignored it, what she's really indicating, from, you can see it in context, is that he should have discussed it. This is, she believes, somehow pertinent to the whole issue of the reproduction of labor power and the relations between the worker and capital. I don't think that he needed to discuss it because it's a book about capital, the capitalist mode of production, and it's not a book about everything that takes place within capitalism. Federici says, okay, here's why he should have discussed it. She says, Marx reduced her work, you know, he reduced the reproduction of labor power, in other words, of the workforce, quote, to the workers' consumption of the commodities their wages can buy and the work the production of these commodities requires. Uh, in other words, as if Marx is pretending that housework and childcare weren't needed to reproduce labor power, but they are needed, so he should have analyzed them. That, that, that's her argument. But the claim that Marx reduced the reproduction of labor power to production and consumption of commodities is just plain false. And there's a, a passage that Federici herself quotes that just says that that's not what Marx is doing. Here's the passage. Marx wrote, The maintenance and reproduction of the working class remains a necessary condition for the reproduction of capital. But the capitalist may safely leave this to the workers' drives for self-preservation and propagation. End quote. So, Marx is there affirming the very obvious point that this reproductive work is needed for the reproduction of labor power. But what he's saying is he doesn't need to analyze it in the book Capital, because it's a book about capital. It's not part of the relation between capital and the working class. So the capitalist can safely leave the reproduction of labor power to the working class, and it can be discussed in a book about the reproduction of the working class. It doesn't. It's it's not an issue of capital in relationship to to wage labor. But isn't women's unpaid reproductive work necessary for capitalist production and capitalist accumulation? Um, just dabbles advocate, right? So um, capitalism needs a working class, and if the working class doesn't just drop from the sky, it has to be uh, reproduced. So reproductive work is necessary to ensure that there are workers to exploit, right? Yeah, it's necessary. So if women's reproductive work is necessary, shouldn't Marx have included an analysis of it in Capital? <laughs> to play devil's advocate here, an analysis of how profits and wages are affected by the fact that women don't receive wages for doing housework? I think these arguments from necessity, you know, they seem superficially compelling, but Think of it taken literally. The form of the argument is X is necessary for Y. So if you have an analysis of Y, it should include an analysis of X. I don't think this ever makes any sense because there are many, many necessary conditions for almost everything. Uh, and certainly for the reproduction of capital. You know, so you need this uh, reproductive work. You need a state. You need a contractual legal system. You need oxygen. 
that's necessary. Uh, and so you need plants, because we don't have oxygen without the plants. In the end, if you're going to say you have to talk about everything that's necessary, you have to talk about everything under the sun. And you got to talk about the sun, because its existence is necessary too. So if you want to make an argument that, you know, something should be discussed, I'm willing to listen to it. But when you say, well, this is necessary to that, therefore it should be discussed, no. You know, it's just like saying, well, you need to get the food from somewhere, so, you know, farming and animal husbandry uh, are, you know, necessary be before you can eat, so they should go in the cookbook. No, <laughs> it just ain't so. Everything depends on everything. I understand that. But usually it's a good idea not to talk about right. everything at once. Right. Now, and as you say, like, there's a spe very specific scope of what Marx is doing in Capital, which is to talk about the capitalist mode of production, but is maybe the reason that so many people want to make it a book about all of capitalism or everything capitalist society, is there any kernel of reason in that? I mean, isn't there a sense in which what Marx is describing is like sort of elemental for society, for capitalist society, and that you know this is the mode of production in which the superstructure grows out of or sits on top of, right? So this is somehow like determinant of or creative of the social relations that are, you know, in, in the, there are the world of appearances. People want it to be like a reductive sort of work in which Marx is saying that this, this is the fundamental like building blocks of society and everything is explained by this, right? So you're saying it's not... Right. I mean, I think you're getting at the difference, which I haven't ever heard anybody articulate before, but, but the difference between this is an analysis of this, you know, essential relation, the capital, the wage-labor relation, versus here are the most uh, important aspects or foundational aspects of capitalist society. Those are somewhat different questions. And, I mean, one could make an argument that what Marx is trying to do is give us the most uh, important elements of capitalist society. I, 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 don't, I wouldn't agree with it, but one could make that argument and then say, well, because he was trying to give us the most important elements of society and X is not present and it's one of the most important elements of society, therefore, you know, there's a problem there. One, one could make that argument, but uh, it's, not, it's not an argument I've ever seen. Uh, and I wouldn't agree with it anyway. I think he was trying to do um, an analysis of capital. Uh, and, I mean, he's got a specific idea here, right, which is that the, 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 mo the mode of production is the, the, the foundation of the society on which the superstructure is, is, is built. And if you're, you're going to make some other kind of argument of the kind that you were sort of uh, alluding to, you're, you're, you're going to come up against that. You're going to eventually say, well, no. There's other things, uh, and people make those kinds of arguments. But that, that, that then reduces to, you know, I don't accept historical materialism. That's not a question of Marx not being relevant or having left out or ignored something or been a man of his time or have been a man or any of that stuff. Um, so your paper deals with two different arguments that Marx's falling rate of profit theory has been rendered irrelevant by changes that have taken place in capitalism. Uh, one of these arguments comes from Jonathan Sperber in a recent biography of Marx, 
Uh, what is Sperber's argument, and what's your yeah? Opinion on that? Um, so he says that Marx's falling rate of profit theory uh, is derived from David Ricardo's theory, and according to Sperber, this quote uh, pertains to a now very outdated version of capitalism characterized by low rates of productivity increase and a large agricultural sector uh, under pressure from population growth. That gets Ricardo right, uh, but it's the exact opposite of what Marx argued. Uh, Marx opposed Ricardo's theory, right? Uh, Ricardo said that the rate of profit tends to fall because of declining agricultural productivity. And Marx said again and again and again that the rate of profit tends to fall not because labor becomes less productive, but because it becomes more productive. Um, and that's falling rate of profit 101. So, I mean, you know, it, it's just a historian who doesn't know much about the political economy, doesn't know much about Marx, writes a biography of Marx. You know, he, he says, yeah, Marx was concerned with the rising productivity, this and that. But then he gets to, oh, well, it's based on Ricardo. And he, he, he's just got a contradiction and he doesn't even notice it. He just it tells us both things. So another argument that changes in capitalism have made Marx's falling rate of profit theory irrelevant comes from the monthly review school, um, the Baron and Sweezy monopoly capitalism uh, school of thought. And you deal with that as well in this paper. Why do they say that Marx's theory has become irrelevant? Uh, they say that Marx's falling rate of profit theory uh, presupposes a competitive system. Uh, meaning competitive in contrast to monopolistic or oligopolistic. And then they say, well, after Marx wrote, you know, monopoly and oligopoly became the dominant market structures, so uh, Marx's theory is no longer relevant. How does the issue of capital's genre come into play with, with this issue? Well, it's kind of implicit, but they treat capital here as if it were descriptive work. It described... A competitive system, not monopoly, not oligopoly, according to them. Uh, and because that description is no longer accurate, they suggest that the falling rate of profit theory is no longer accurate because of that. So, Baron and Sweezy, in their book Monopoly Capital, argue that the rise of monopolies and oligopolies nullifies the tendency of the rate of profit to fall. Uh, do you agree with that? I agree that that's what they said, yeah. Um, the, the, the argument they make is that Marx's law of falling rate of profit doesn't operate where you've got monopolies and oligopolies because uh, these are large firms, they've got the power to set their prices, uh, and thereby they can keep their profits up, um, unlike firms in a competitive system. That, that's their argument. So in your paper you say, quote, their claim that Marx's law is no longer relevant was based on the simple fact that the capitalist system has changed, not on any real effort to demonstrate that it is impossible to apply Marx's argument to this changed system, close quote. So why do you argue that? Right. I mean, they do more than just say, we got monopoly and oligopoly, uh, the, the, the system's changed, so the law is not relevant. They, 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 they make an attempt to connect those two things, you know, the rise of mo uh, monopoly and oligopoly to, you know, the, the law supposedly not being operative. But it, it's not a serious argument that they're making. Uh, it contains a glaring logical flaw. Uh, it ignores Marx's anticipation of 
their argument and provision of a counter argument. So anybody who is actually looking at the issue concerned with the soundness of the arguments, they're not going to be persuaded by Barron and Sweezy uh, and the rest of the monthly review school. <laughs> Uh, the only people who are going to be persuaded are the naive people who say, well, you know, capitalism describes capitalism, ca the book Capital describes capitalism, and there's no monopoly and oligopoly, so the system's changed and it's no longer relevant. That, that's the kind of person who will be convinced by, by their argumentation. Um, well, let's get into a little bit of the details of, you know, what the problem is with their argument. Okay, so what's wrong with Barron and Sweezy's claim that Marx's falling rate of profit theory presupposes a competitive system instead of a system dominated by monopolies and oligopolies, and that we need to throw out Marx's law and replace it with their theory. Yeah, they, they got this law of the tendency of the surplus to rise, which is kind of like the exact right. opposite. Um, well, first of all, Marx was very well aware of monopoly. Uh, he discussed the centralization of capital, as you know, uh, we've talked about it. You talked about it in connection with, uh, you know, the environmental crisis. Uh, he theorized why this centralization would keep uh, continuing and proceeding. Uh, he discussed the emergence of, you know, joint stock companies, which are like corporations. And he says that that gives rise to monopolies in some circumstances. But the main thing is, Marx discussed monopoly prices uh, and the effects of monopoly prices you know, mm -hmm. on profitability and everything. Right. And 200, 200 pages of volume three of Capital are devoted to a particular instance of monopoly pricing, uh, which has to do with land rent. I mean, it's not what we think of when we think of monopoly nowadays, but good land is scarce. And, you know, who has a monopoly over the best land is the one landowner who owns that land. So the rent of land, you know, is a, a, a monopoly charge and, any price that includes the monopoly rent in it is a monopoly price. So, you know, this idea that Marx is operating just with, like, you know, these competitively determined market prices, that they, there's no monopoly element, that, that's just simply false. So how did Marx, you said, you said that Marx anticipated Baron and Sweezy's argument and had a counter-argument. So what is that? Right. Okay, so the, the, the Baron and Sweezy argument is... You got these monopolies and oligopolies. They have the power to set their prices. They can keep their profits up by, you know, charging higher prices. Yeah. So we don't need to worry about falling a falling aggregate rate of profit because they can just arbitrarily raise their pri pri their prices. They can just yeah they 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 can they can keep their prices up and they can keep their profits yeah. up. Okay, now let's assume that that's true. There are problems with that, but let's. For the sake of argument, let's assume that the monopolies and oligopolies can basically, you know, boost their prices, keep their own profits up. That's not enough. What Baran and Sweezy concluded from this is that the aggregate profit, the total profit in the whole economy, is thereby increased because of this price-setting behavior by the, the big firms. Okay, but that does not follow at all. That's the fallacy of composition. That's the logical fallacy that, that's just kind of glaring right there in, in their argument, like sitting, yeah, it's a sitting duck. Fallacy of composition means that you assume something that's not true, that if something holds true in the individual case, it has to true, hold true for the whole. You know, what is true in the individual case is true for the whole. That doesn't have to be. So here's what we could, could have. 
we can have some firms uh, profits increasing because they are able to set their prices but it doesn't have to be that this that makes the total profit in the system increase if, if these firms profits increase but the profits of the remaining firms decline by an equal amount then the total profit in the system as a whole remains unchanged in other words if the big firms are getting uh, additional profit if they're boosting their profits at the expense of the com smaller competitive firms then the total profit is just what it is and it's just a redistribution of profit away from the competitive firms to the, the big monopolies and oligopolies and that is the argument that Marx anticipated that is his argument he says the total surplus value is determined by the amount of uh, surplus labor uh, pumped out of the workers and then it gets just divided in various ways and if some of the, the, the property owners get more the others get less so yeah Marx said the, you know the monopolies can um, the monopolists whatever they can uh, increase their profits at the expense of the the other guys but it's at the expense of the other guys it's at the expense of the other uh, capitalists and in, in the uh, the system as a whole, it's a wash. Okay, so it has absolutely no no bearing at all on the validity, relevance, or whatever of the tendential fall in the rate of profit. The the, the counter to this Baron and Sweezy argument about monopoly prices uh, being able to escape the falling rate of profit, it it has to completely jettison like all the foundational category you know, things in capital like the idea that there's a zero-sum game in surplus value right or that surplus value is redistributed between capitals right and if you do that and then you sort of are just making the, pro the argument that like profit just comes from being able to arbitrarily raise your prices then you run into the sort of problems with like developing the theory of surplus value that Marx is critiquing early in capital, right? And we, you know, was talking about like where, because you know, the different theories of surplus value. Where does it come from? You know, do capitalists just make a profit by arbitrarily raising their prices? I mean, then you get into all those kind of problems that that don't really make any sense when you examine them. Yeah, I mean, you're, 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 you're I didn't even touch on this in, in in the paper at all, but you're absolutely right. You you make the kind of argument that they make, and a lot more is involved in it by implication than you know the falling rate of profit theory you're you're you're, you're jettisoning huge amounts of, of capital you're jettisoning the whole value theory so so much else uh if you want to be consistent but you know i don't think that that was ever their strong suit but you know it's, it's not like they weren't aware i find it almost impossible to believe these are very sharp people sweezy you know Harvard trained blah 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 I find it very hard to believe that they were not aware that Marx said that the the, the total surplus value is uh, determined by the amount of surplus labor pumped out of the workers and that monopoly pricing just transfers profit from capitalists with the more market power away from those with the less market power I, I, I find it almost impossible to believe that they were not aware of that but, you know, in, in Monopoly Capital, Baron and Sweezy say, okay, here's our uh, law of the rising surplus, and here's some counter-arguments, and we're going to answer them. And Marx's counter-argument was yeah. just not mentioned at all. They just yeah. totally ignored it. So, in concluding your paper, you say that your purpose wasn't to convince Federici or Sperber or the Monthly Review School that Marxist theories are right. But 
Um, if they're not convinced he was right, won't they keep making the claims that you criticize? And won't they keep mischaracterizing Capital as a book of description or a book about everything in capitalism? Yeah, haters going to hate, right? Um, <laughs> they're going to keep at it uh, until they're stopped. They're not going to change their behavior willingly. I, I, I understand that. But I wasn't trying to convince them because I don't think anything I say will convince them. And I actually have serious doubts that anybody, you know, no matter how talented, uh, could convince them. If the point is, and I'm not saying in any particular case, but often with these claims of irrelevance, uh, the point is to gain an audience. <clears throat> the point is to gain an audience, or keep an audience, or justify one's project. Uh, if that is what you're trying to do, rather than to be right. Uh, then nothing's going to convince people who make these kinds of arguments because, you know, anybody can kind of understand the system looks different from the, what, what, you know, this stuff in, in capital. You know, I can't relate to it. I'd rather talk about gender identity or being ripped off by the phone companies. So if that's where people's heads are at, you know, gaining an audience, justifying their project, the arguments in the paper aren't going to convince them. And I wasn't trying to convince them uh, what I'm trying to do with my arguments is to criticize their behavior. Uh, so I really was not writing for them uh, or to them. I was reaching beyond them, trying to explain to people who, of goodwill who do care about truth versus falsehood. I'm trying to say, look what's going on here. Here's why you should be incensed about this behavior, and here's you know why you should try to do what you can to, to stop it. Hey, that's all the time we have for this episode of Radio Free Humanity. If you like the podcast, please do stop by MarxistHumanistInitiative.org to listen to other episodes and to read more about these issues and others. As always, if you like the podcast, we encourage you to write to us, to comment and rate the podcast, and of course, to share with all your friends and enemies. 